provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Turning Hard Times into Good Times, I am your host, Jay Taylor. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show and making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank uh, our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are American Manganese, Atocha Resources, Millrock Resources, Palangio Exploration, American Bonanza, Brazil Resources, Helio Resources, Merrick's Gold, Metanor Resources, and Paramount Gold and Silver. Well, this week our show is going to be a bit different because my main guest is a book rather than a real live human being. Actually, we have had the author of this book, the real live author of this book, on the show back in March of 2009, our very first show, in fact, and it was G. Edward Griffin. So now many of you may know who my guest this week is. It is the creature from Jekyll Island. Who is the creature from Jekyll Island? Well, it's none other than the Federal Reserve Bank. Why was the creature created, and who created it? And what were the real reasons for the creature's uh, creation, as opposed to the reasons that are commonly given by our media? How has the creature from Jekyll Island served to enrich the ruling elite at the expense of the American middle class? And in raising these questions, my mind went back to numerous conversations that I have had on this show since it was begun back in March of 2009. I'm thinking of numerous brave and honest souls who have talked to me over the past few years uh, and have stated ideas that probably do not make them the most popular people in the world, especially among the mainstream. Let me name just a few of the outstanding guests we have had on this show who I think have really helped us understand what is really going on behind the scenes, who the uh, powers behind the scenes are, and I think that the much of the insights that were gained from these people help us understand why policies are the way they are, and why we as middle class people are being really uh, put under a lot of stress. I'm thinking of Ed Griffin, of course, who I just mentioned. He's the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, and he was the very first guest on our show. And the voices of two former presidents of the United States I also played on this show uh, that I think really provided some insight and some warnings about what's going on now. Dwight Eisenhower warned us of the military-industrial complex, and John Kennedy warned us about secret societies. Then there have been many people that I've spoken to on this show over the last uh, two and a half years or so uh, who I think help us see uh, you know, beneath the smoke screen that's provided by the ruling elite, help us really understand and see the truth of what's really going on as opposed to what we're told is going on. I'm thinking Daniel Estelin, the premier authority on the Bilderberg organization. Adrian Salbucci, uh, who is an Argentine economist who looked uh, and studied what went on in, in Argentina and, and um, how that was orchestrated and by whom, and Adrian is really helping us understand what's going on around the world 
the same model is being employed elsewhere uh, throughout the world by the same multi-corporate ruling elite. Dmitry Orlov grew up in the Soviet Union, warns us of the parallels of what's going on here with what went on in the demise of the Soviet Union. And he talks about the effective U.S. propaganda machine that is so superior to what the Soviets had and what the Nazi thugs had uh, during the uh, Second World War and before. John Loftus, uh, who wrote the book titled America's Nazi Secret, talks about how some of these same ruling elite families, uh, the Bushes, the Rockefellers, the DuPonts, the Walkers, the Harrimans, the Kennedys, how they played both sides, how they supported the Nazis during World War II. These are people or families that have seemed to care little about America's constitutional roots and who are really interested in their own empowerment and enrichment uh, globally. John Perkins has talked to us about how uh, the new policy, what's going on post-World War II, uh, how the policy has been of the IMF and the World Bank uh, and the ruling elite to indebt foreign countries to the point where they have to sell us their raw materials in which they are becoming servants of the ruling elite. And John talks about how the same thing has gone on in the, in the United States to indebt the American people so that they are now and quickly becoming indentured servants. I would be remiss not to mention Bill Murphy and Chris Powell for their excellent work at the Gold Antitrust Action Committee in uncovering market manipulation in the gold markets by some of the largest shareholders of the creature from Jekyll Island. The end result uh, is a loss of freedom and liberty. That's what is being lost right now as a result of the policies that are, I believe, very, very clearly uh, orchestrated by the ruling elite, the people uh, that set up the creature from Jekyll Island. Other contributors on this show whose work is not directly related to politics, but which have had, I think, a great uh, uh, have had a great impact on helping us understand uh, the what is unfolding in the United States in the markets. Richard Mayberry, who is perhaps uh, the most, uh, probably nobody better in terms of projecting the past into the future and understanding why things are as they are now geopolitically around the globe. And I'm thinking Ian Gordon, Bob Hoy, Robert Prechter, all have also a keen understanding of history and are able to project that into the future and help us understand why things are what they are now. Very successful investors like Rick Rule, Doug Casey, and James Turk are three more individuals who I think understand <clears throat> the, the loss of liberty and the loss of freedom and the, and the markets and how totalitarian government, Keynesian economics more specifically, have really uh, served to destroy our country. The question as to whether this destructive parasitic process can be abated remains to be seen, of course, but when I think of the heroes who are trying to fix things by righting the wrongs of the past, I think maybe, just maybe, it's possible that things can be turned around. For example, right now I'm thinking of three brave men who have been on my show uh, who have really trying to bring to the attention of the people what has going on in the past and how uh, and how it can be righted into the future. Vincent Bugliosi has written a book, Prosecuting George W. Bush for Murder, and uh, he has a film that is coming out, a documentary film. He is deadly serious about prosecuting George W. Bush for murder and his uh, the false pretenses under which we went to war in Iraq. Lewis Lehrman is working hard to have people understand why we must restore honest money, that is gold and silver, if we are to retain or return to the liberties of our past. Ron Paul, who I have known personally for a couple of decades, is perhaps the bravest soul of all in trying to turn things around for the sake of the masses of Americans. The abuse this man has taken from the pro-military industrial complex politicians that he is up against, as well as the media, is unbelievable. <clears throat> Excuse me. And yet, despite all the odds, he is continuing to rise in the polls. As of this moment, he is considered to be the uh, leading candidate uh, to win the Iowa primary. So the big question on my mind and the minds of millions of Ron Paul supporters is not, can he win Iowa, but can he win the presidential election? In just a few minutes, I'm going to have Jeff Dice join me. We'll talk to Jeff about Ron's surge in the polls and his chances going forward. Whether or not freedom and liberty is restored to our land is an open question. We can hope and pray that is the case, but I don't think that we can count or bank on that happening. 
So how do we prepare ourselves for the unfortunate likelihood that the good guys, the Ron Pauls, the Vincent Bugliosis, the Louis Lehrmans of this world, do not prevail? Well, there is no good way, I think, to prepare for a lack of liberty and freedom. There's nothing that can that can really uh, that can really replace those uh, ideal conditions for human for the human uh, spirit. But the best thing that we can do is not to buy the propaganda that emanates from the creature from Jekyll Island and all of the media that he controls. They would con you into believing that Bernanke and other creature operatives could save you if after this time you believe the establishment, then there, I think, is little hope, perhaps, for you in the future. You will end up exactly where the creature wants you, and that is firmly in his grasp as an indentured servant. For the last 12 years, I have been telling my subscribers to buy gold and silver and the shares of the companies that produce those honest monetary metals, and that has paid off very, very well. It has allowed many people to beat the market over the past number of years, and my ads, uh, as my uh, remind you frequently on this show. So the second hour of today, though, I am going to be talking to Nolan Watson. He is the CEO of Sandstorm Gold. This is one of my favorite gold mining stocks, and for reasons I think will become clear, it is one of the lowest risk, highest return way to play the smaller gold mining stock market, and I think a way to do extremely well going forward into the future. We have so much to cover, so little time to do it, so let's get right to our first commercial. And when we come back, I'll be right back. Uh, I'll be with Ron Paul's chief of staff, Jeff Dice. So don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Merix Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merix and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merix's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Attention gold stock investors, Brazil Resources, Inc., trading as BRIZF on the OTCQX and as BRI on the TSX Venture, is exploring three gold projects in the Garupi Gold Belt in Brazil. Surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits, BRI features top Brazilian geologists, earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in Brazil, led by recognized mining and financing executive Amir Adnani, co-founder and chairman. Look us up now at www.brazilresources.com. That's Brazil Resources. Or call us at 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP Gold Project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's Navatschap Gold Mine. For updates, check out helioresource.com. Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in gold and silver exploration. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, uh, once again, my good friend, Jeff Dice, uh, who also happens to be Ron Paul's chief of staff. Welcome, Jeff. Hello, Jay. Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas to you, and let's, ha- let's hope we have a happy new year, a happier new year. Nine, uh, 2011 has been a difficult year for many of us uh, in the investment community, for sure. Uh, it's been a fairly good year uh, in many ways, in many respects, I suppose, for the political, um, certainly for the uh, for Ron Paul and uh, his popularity has grown. It is very encouraging to those of us who would like to see an emphasis on liberty and freedom and a de-emphasis on uh, on uh, on a government that seems to be uh, choking and suffocating us. But um, we we are definitely seeing uh, a surge in Ron Paul's popularity in the polls. What do you think his chances are of winning in Iowa? Well, Jay, I guess I'm an observer like you. I don't work for his campaign or with his campaign, but I do know that he has an excellent uh, and widespread team on the ground in Iowa, and uh, I think he is—he has a very, very good chance of winning in Iowa next week. Mm-hmm. Well, that's encouraging. Uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed, and I guess those who are able will continue to work for Ron. Uh, as you say, you are not on his campaign. You are actually his chief of staff, so you're involved with uh, the day-to-day activities of, of Congressman Ron Paul. Uh, I would like to ask you, since our show is so much about the Federal Reserve and the creature from Jekyll Island, which is the nickname given to the Federal Reserve by author G. Edward Griffin, who wrote the book named The Creature from Jekyll Island, I would like to ask you uh, some questions about the Fed, perhaps. And your boss, Ron Paul, has stated that he believes the Federal Reserve Bank is unconstitutional. As such, he has proposed uh, legislation for uh, getting rid of it. Uh, could you explain that view? Uh, it certainly isn't one that most congressmen and most mainstream people believe. Uh, could you explain why Congressman Paul believes that the Fed is unconstitutional? Well, Jay, in brief, I would say that if you read the text of the Constitution, it outlines a system for repayment of debts in gold and silver and uh, discusses both gold and silver as as legal tender. Uh, I, I think the the main problem with the Fed that Congressman Paul alludes to is simply that what you did was you had Congress uh, sort of abdicate its power over money to a cartel of, of quasi-public, in a, in a sense, but really private banks mm-hmm. uh, to, to coin money and regulate the value thereof, which is a power that really in the Constitution is given to Congress. Uh, and so I think Ron Paul would argue that that's not a power that you can cede to another branch of government, and certainly not a power that you can cede constitutionally to a, a uh, private cartel of banks. And, and as we see in the history of the 20th century, is the history of that private cartel uh, becoming very rich mm-hmm. off the ability to uh, to expand the money supply and increase the amount of money and credit out there. And 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 our fractional reserve system allows all of that to. Uh, exponentially increase the amount that they're able to lend and and, uh, and hence the amount that they're able to collect interest on. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been an unholy time, but uh, I, I would say that the Federal Reserve Act um, ushered in a very bad time in America. It's uh, A lot of historians, monetary historians, argue that uh, you know it helped uh, make our involvement in World War I possible mm-hmm. because without that, if Congress had actually been required to raise the money needed for World War I via taxes or via uh, uh, just borrowing uh, bond issuance, uh, it would have had a hard time. So uh, what we generally see, Jay, is that war... And currency inflation go hand in hand because that's how governments, uh, that's how we paid for the Civil War, that's how we paid for World War One, and uh, in a very ugly way, it's certainly how we paid for the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts of the last ten years. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd, I'd certainly uh, your answer here raises another question that we don't have time to go to uh, to go to uh, to discuss today, but that is, wasn't World War One a good thing? Wasn't World War Two a good thing? 
and so wasn't uh, the uh, the Federal Reserve Act a good thing? Maybe you just take a second to answer that. Well, apart from the foreign policy question of those wars, uh, you know, I think the Federal Reserve Act was a very bad thing because it gave politicians <clears throat> what they've always wanted, which is a, a way to spend beyond their means in a way that doesn't immediately impact and thus anger <laughs> the voters they're trying to get. So it was a uh, huge boon to the political class to have the ability to, to have this private a- a- entity uh, inflating the money supply, but it was uh, terrible for uh, the productive saving class of America. Mm-hmm. Well, the reasons that are given to the population, to the to the general populace for the Fed's existence, is, you know, sounds pretty good. Uh, the Fed is supposed to ensure full employment. It's supposed to ensure stable prices. Those would seem to be um, noble goals. Uh, what kind of a grade would you give to the Fed for carrying out uh, or for executing its stated goals? Well, clearly, Jay, on the subject of or the uh, provision of a stable currency, the Fed gets an F minus because the value of a dollar has has done nothing but plummet throughout the 20th century, now into the 21st. And of course, anybody who's ever read the famous book, you know, whatever happened to Penny Candy, mm-hmm. understands that conceptually. And that's why a uh, you know a small craftsman home that uh, you know cost thirty thousand dollars when it was new, and it used to be occupied by a bus driver, or a waitress, or a police officer, or some sort of blue collar person in a place like Los Angeles. You know, now it costs a million dollars, and then, mm-hmm. you know, obviously that's an absurdity. Uh, but uh, in terms of full employment, uh, first of all, that's a, that's a very statist and Soviet concept. Mm-hmm. The goal for us, any society's economy, should be to high productivity, not not full employment. So that that's uh, you know, and if you read uh, Henry Hazlitt's great book, Economics in One Lesson, there's a great chapter in there called the fetish of full mm-hmm. employment, which absolutely demolishes that myth. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, of course, we want citizens to be productive, and, and for most folks that means employed. Uh, but uh, I think that if you read uh, shadowsats.com, mm-hmm. uh, which is run by a, a gentleman named John Williams, mm-hmm. I think that unemployment is much, much higher uh, than the federal government lets on because so many people aren't counted. Mm-hmm. And uh, by any measure, um, unemployment is very, very bad in America right now. Mm-hmm. Well, so we've had uh, the stated goals of the Federal Reserve, um, as you're giving them an F minus. I think you said in stable prices. I, I uh, ha- have looked at it as an F. You're even tougher than I. I didn't know there was such a thing as an F minus. But <laughs> <laughs> in any event, uh, the Fed still exists in spite of its failures. I mean, we can look back at the 1930s. The 1930s, uh, you know, as, as Treasury Secretary Morgenthau himself said, and he was a close personal friend of Roosevelt, after eight years, we have just as much unemployment as we had when we took office, and we have all this debt to boot. seems to me now we are running on quite a few years since Lehman Brothers took place, and we have all of this unemployment, and we have a lot of debt to boot. Uh, and yet the Federal Reserve exists. Nobody, uh, I shouldn't say nobody, Ron Paul and a growing number of people. There are more and more people who are questioning the existence of the Fed. But nonetheless, it's still very much entrenched in our lives and, and seems to be uh, entrenched forever in our lives. Uh, do you think there might be some other reasons? You did mention a cartel, that a cartel was formed. Do you think there might be some other reasons um, why the Fed actually exists as opposed to the stated reasons that it exists. Well, I suppose currently it exists because of inertia, and there's not the political uh, uh, will to to move to a, a different kind of monetary system. But you mm-hmm. have to understand that I mean, uh, central banks are very useful to the political class and to and to markets even mm-hmm. in the short run because, as we've seen since the Lehman crash of '08, or since the, I should say the economic crash of '08, is they allow us to kick the can down the road and. They allow us to paper over some of our problems and keep printing money and keep uh, pumping liquidity into an anemic economy, um, you know, to keep it on life support. But as Peter Schiff uh, has said recently, you know, we're running out of road mm-hmm. uh, upon which to kick the can. And yeah. uh, it's, it's, what's so frightening is that uh, central banks, uh, through their relentless monetary inflation, they make these problems so much bigger. So, so we're, we're going to be dealing with a much bigger bubble. I mean, Bert, uh, Greenspan did this after the 2001 tech stock collapse. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Bernanke did it after the uh, 08 housing and, and uh, financial sector collapse, the, mm-hmm. uh, the BlackBerry panic, um, some have called it. So uh, 
you know, our problems keep getting bigger. And, and uh, what's, what's incredibly worrisome, Jay, is that, you know, inflating the U.S. dollar to, to where you, you risk a currency crisis would be unprecedented in human history because we've seen currencies collapse before, but they were always in single countries like Weimar yeah. Germany or, or yeah. Argentina or wherever they might be. Um, we, you know, here we have, you know, the dollar, U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. What would it mean to China Mm-hmm. With all of its dollar holdings at the U.S. dollar mm-hmm. collapse. What would it mean to the euro? Mm-hmm. What would it mean to all the uh, oil-rich OPEC countries who mm-hmm. have huge dollar reserves uh, from selling oil uh, in dollars all these years? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a it's a, a it's a potentially a crisis of unprecedented magnitude, um, and uh, it's it's awfully hard to know uh, uh, where to take one's money these days. Yeah, that is a question. Of course, it's a question that we ponder in this show every week and in my newsletter, and I know uh, most people who at least uh, look at the world through the lens of Austrian economic theory uh, see things quite differently. Um, the the uh, running out of road to kick the can is a good way of putting it, Jeff. I think uh, Peter Schiff has that right. Of course, uh, we can expect, can we not, taxes, higher taxes, which is the, clo- the collateral for the Federal Reserve um, banking system, isn't it? Uh, we, can, we can expect, I suppose, more uh, tyranny, more more taxes from government. Uh, is that what we can pretty well expect? Well, unfortunately, I would say yes. I mean, at some point, um, the federal government needs revenue, and at some point there are natural limits on our ability to print and borrow, uh, especially in terms of the interest portion of the uh, of the annual federal budget. But what's so tragic about this is there is a way. There is, there is an answer here. It's, there, there's a market answer to all of this that Congressman Paul has been suggesting for years, and it's not, it's not complicated. It's quite simple. But simple doesn't mean easy. And, and, and what, what simple is, is is simply allowing competing currency. In other words, we don't have to do away with the dollar, Jay. We don't have to do mm-hmm. away with the Fed. We simply have to do away with legal tender laws mm-hmm. and allow the marketplace to start mm-hmm. to I- introduce alternative forms of currency and and this would this would happen quickly because so many people are worried about the dollar mm-hmm. um, and you know you could use gold and silver on a private basis and still let the, let the government have its dollar if it's so great if the greenspans and bernankis are such wizards bernankis uh, let then people will stay in the dollar and they don't have to worry about it but if they're not give people the legal right to go out and use other forms of exchange without going to jail for god's sake mm-hmm. and you know Electronic e-gold, e-silver, etc., has solved the problem with technology. Of you know, how do you buy small items? How do you buy a loaf of bread with you know a seventeen hundred dollar gold coin? You know, one ounce gold coin. Um, you know, we now have the electronic means to to, to solve some of these problems. And uh, really, this this notion of competing currencies is uh, I'd like to say it's time has come. I think it's time is actually growing late. Yeah, we're unfortunately, Jeff, we are out of town. There's so much more uh, time, I should say, out of town. I'm going to be out of town if I'm not careful. We're out of time. Uh, we are going to be talking about the creature from Jekyll Island and uh, his, his propensity to try to hang on to the status quo to dollars and not allow a competing currency system. So uh, we're going to go to break right now, and when, uh, when we come back, I will be talking about the creature from Jekyll Island and how uh, you might find some ways to protect yourself from it. Don't go away. I will be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Merex Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merex's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. 
American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project located in Arizona is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Attention gold stock investors, Brazil Resources Inc. Trading as BRIZF on the OTCQX and as BRI on the TSX Venture is exploring three gold projects in the Garupi Gold Belt in Brazil. Surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits, BRI features top Brazilian geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in Brazil, led by recognized mining and financing executive Amir Adnani, co-founder and chairman. Look us up now at www.brazilresources.com. That's Brazil Resources. Or call us at 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP Gold Project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's Navatsjab Gold Mine. For updates, check out helioresource.com. Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in gold and silver exploration. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Back to turning hard times into good times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, today I want to talk to you about the creature from Jekyll Island. The creature from Jekyll Island is, of course, the Federal Reserve Bank in the United States. I want to talk to you about understanding this creature and how you can protect yourself from the damages that it has caused and is likely to continue to cause into the future. You know, on this show, we like to say that uh, it is important uh, in order to prepare yourself for the future to understand the problems that you face and to understand their origins and the nature of those problems. 
And because I believe that the biggest problem that we face, or let's say the the cause of the problems that we face, uh, the biggest problems that we face, economically speaking, is the Federal Reserve Bank, then I think it's very important that we understand the creature from Jekyll Island. Why was it created? By whom? And for what purpose? And if we can understand that, then I think it's easier to sort of project what's going to happen in the future in a major way. I'm not talking about timing necessarily. I'm not talking about um, exactly which markets are going to do well and which are not going to do well, although we can uh, get, provide some guidance along those lines as well if we understand the Federal Reserve and how the Federal Reserve is manipulating markets and keeping markets from doing their natural thing. So we want to talk about understanding the creature from Jekyll Island and protecting yourself from it. The creature from Jekyll Island was uh, the brainchild of a number of very, very rich people. Going back uh, in uh, 1910, uh, stepping back before that, of course, we realize uh, those who have studied American history know that a central bank was, was an idea that was not popular among the American people and among most of the founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson, probably most notably, was against a central bank. Andrew Jackson, President Jackson, was very much against a central bank. And there were those who were in favor of a central bank, Alexander Hamilton being the most noteworthy person, a Wall Street-connected guy back in the early days of our republic. So there was this huge uh, desire not to have, on the part of the populace at least, not to have a central bank because there was a fear that the central bank could use its power to to mess with markets and to keep people from having their fair share. So uh, back in 1910, however, those who really wanted to see the Federal Reserve, a Federal Reserve or a central bank in the United States created, met uh, in 1910 at Jekyll Island. That's an island off the coast of Georgia. And according to Ed Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, those uh, several gentlemen met in Hoboken, New Jersey, undercover as duck hunters. Uh, in fact, that's what uh, Jekyll Island was known for. It's hunting. Uh, it was a hunting lodge, essentially. And these men met in their own private car uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey, to travel to Jekyll Island, where they were going to plan how they could get a central bank passed into law in the United States. And so uh, one, the, uh, various people who represented one-sixth of the world's wealth congregated in 1910 on Jekyll Island. Now, some of those interests that were represented there were the Morgans, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the Warburgs, and the Kuhn Loebs. Those were the wealthy families, European uh, and American banking families, that really did want to see a central bank created in the United States. Now, some of the people that represented those wealthy people uh, that were at Jekyll Island. Um, well, a lot of these folks were fairly wealthy themselves, but Nelson Aldrich, he was the Republican whip in the Senate. He was the chairman of the National Monetary Commission. He was a father-in-law, actually, to John D. Rockefeller. Henry B. P. Davidson was a senior partner at J.P. Morgan. He was there. Uh, Charles Norton was at, the, uh, at Jekyll Island. He was the president of the First National Bank of New York. Abraham Piat Andrew, he was the assistant treasury secretary. Uh, he was there at Jekyll Island. Franklin A. Vanderlip, he was the president of National City Bank of New York. He represented William Rockefeller. Benjamin Strong was there. He was the head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. He later became, of course, the Federal Reserve Chairman. Paul Warburg uh, was a partner at Kuhn Loeb and Company, representing the Rothschilds and the Warburgs in Europe. Now, we are told that the Federal Reserve is a good thing because it's here to help us, we the people. How is it going to help us? Well, supposedly the Federal Reserve is going to maintain stable prices and it was supposed to maintain full employment. The theory has been that the Federal's, uh, that the Fed's in independence uh, allows it to keep politics out of the Fed policy decisions. Well, I believe it may keep popular uh, politics out of the Fed's decision making but it certainly doesn't keep uh, other influences out of the Federal Reserve's uh, uh, policies. And for reasons I think will be clear uh, as I tell you a little bit more about who owns the Fed and the purposes for the Federal, uh, Federal Reserve's being. But let's take a look at its stated, uh, stated purpose for being is to maintain stable prices. That's one of two stated goals. How has it done? 
Well, not very well, actually. It's lost about 97% of its purchasing power. The U.S. currency has since 1913 when the Federal Reserve was passed into law. Uh, and, and just to put that in perspective, uh, it now takes $228,000 to purchase what $10,000 would have purchased back in 1913. So a huge amount of, of purchasing power lost, about 97% of the purchasing power of the dollar was lost since the Federal Reserve was created. So in terms of maintaining stable prices, the Federal Reserve, in my books, gets an F. What about full employment, the other stated goal of the Federal Reserve? Well, if you look at the 1930s, uh, the Federal Reserve was created in 1913. It had over 20%, 25% unemployment during the 1930s. Uh, and uh, and so it was not successful. Not only that, but it was a long drawn out recession, depression. It was much longer than anything that had been seen before the Federal Reserve in the United States. Yes, we've had deep recessions and depressions in the U.S., but they were quick and they were over with fairly quickly because the Federal Reserve was not there to meddle in the economy. So uh, with if we look at full employment, uh, mandate then. The Federal Reserve in the 1930s was a failure and it's a huge failure now too. In fact, if we look, if we were to measure unemployment the same way it was measured in the 1930s, we would be looking now at something like 22% unemployment compared to the 9% or 9.5% that the federal government reports. And of course, uh, one of the main reasons, one of the main differences now is that they no longer count people who are discouraged and no longer look for work those people who were able-bodied were counted during the 1930s as being in the workforce. So maybe there's something different going on. Maybe the real reason for the Federal Reserve and its creation is quite different from the stated reason, the reason that's given to us all the time uh, by the Federal Reserve itself and as it goes about in its public relations uh, to try to convince Americans that it's here to help us. Well, Ed Griffin, in his book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, has some very definite ideas about why the creature was created uh, by these very wealthy people representing one-sixth of the world's wealth back in 1910. Here are four reasons that Griffin says the Federal Reserve was created. First, it was to stop the growing influence of small rival banks and to ensure control over the nation's financial resources uh, would remain in the hands of those at the creature uh, those at uh, Jekyll Island back in 1910. What was happening in the early days of our republic, or in the <clears throat> early 1900s, I should say, is that there was a growing amount of wealth outside of the money center banks, moving west uh, into uh, and westward as as the nation grew. And as that happened, large corporations began to have a considerable amount of wealth deposited that wealth in banks, local banks, and local banks then started to gain market share. And the money center banks in New York and in Europe didn't like that, understandably. Uh, a second reason then was to create a more elastic money supply. This is the reason that is given most frequently by economists these days, is that when we have a decline uh, in the economy that if only we just printed more money, we could make things right, uh, and we didn't. We wouldn't have to suffer so much of a down of a downturn. Well, we're printing money like never before, and we have a huge downturn now. The same thing happened in the 1930s. So I'm not so sure that that reason is a very legitimate reason, but it's the reason that's given to the public. A third reason is to pool the meager resources of the national of the nation's banks into one large reserve. Here, the idea is to homogenize the capital structures of various banks. So you didn't have weak banks that would lead to a run on banks. So if you could sort of socialize or spread out the wealth, as it were, uh, the deposits, and so you have a central bank that can pump money into weak banks uh, to keep them, uh, to keep people from running away from those banks when things turn down in the economy. That was the third reason. And a fourth reason was to shift the losses from the banks to the taxpayers. Uh, should the entire system collapse? Well, the entire system did collapse, didn't it, following Lehman Brothers? It nearly did so. It seized up. Uh, all lending stopped, essentially. Uh, and so we had trillions of dollars that were created out of thin air and pumped into banks to bail out the banks and to revitalize, supposedly revitalize, the capital structure of those banks. So those are the four reasons for the Fed really existing, according to Ed Griffin, as opposed to 
uh, the purposes that are that are frequently given as the reasons for the Federal Reserve's creation. With respect to uh, who owns the Federal Reserve Bank, we talked a minute ago about the Federal Reserve um, and who the the wealthy families were that really wanted a central bank and who conspired to put into effect a central bank back in 1910. And by the way, that law was passed uh, over a Christmas holiday when some very key people were out of Congress uh, and uh, they were able to get the Federal Reserve legislation passed. But I think it really pays if we take a look at who owns the Federal Reserve. There are 12 regional Federal Reserve banks in various big cities around the country. Now, there are approximately, approximately 2,900 individual Fed member banks. If you're a federal member bank, you have to put up some capital. Uh, you have to contribute uh, 3% of your capital stock to the Fed in exchange for shares. And those shares then give a 6% annual dividend, which isn't too shabby when you consider the fact that the two-year treasuries are now paying 0%, I heard this morning on Bloomberg. So we're we're running uh so the so that's the structure. You have 12 regional banks and whatever region you in you are in, you uh own stock in those 12 in, in the in that respective regional bank. There are about 4,800 non-member banks in the United States. But uh the but those 2,900 individual Fed member banks are now part of the Federal Reserve system. They are now a monopoly. Uh, it is a monopoly system that has 2,900 participants, essentially. And each member bank, as I said, is required to contribute 3% of their capital stock uh, in exchange uh, for shares in that regional bank. Now, if we w look at the aggregate, though, as of December 31st, 2008, just a few months after Lehman Brothers cla collapsed, we see that there are four banks that own over 50% of the Federal Reserve stock. Those four, four banks are Bank of America Corp., which owned 19% at that time, J.P. Morgan Chase, which owned 15%, Citigroup owned 8%, and then combined since then, Wells Fargo and Wachovia combined owned 15%. Is it any wonder that Wells Fargo or that Wachovia got bailed out and they pulled together Wells Fargo to Wachovia? We can look at another handful of banks that own another uh, 12%. Those banks would be U.S. Bank Corp., State Street Bank, HSBC, SunTrust Bank, and Bank of New York Mellon. So there are just a handful of banks that own over two-thirds of the stock of the Federal Reserve Bank. Those are the banks that are too big to fail. Those are the banks that will be saved. You can rest your bottom dollar on that. There are uh, The other 32% of the Federal Reserve is then owned by roughly 2,900 banks, essentially. So there is a concentration of power in the hands of just a few banks. And those banks, interestingly enough, uh, are to a great extent still, uh, presumably, and I believe this is true, owned by the same families that congregated back in 1910 to, uh, to make sure, to conspire, uh, to create a Federal Reserve Bank. So let's take a look then. Uh, let's summarize a little bit in terms of the Federal Reserve's performance. In terms of its stated goals, that is unemployment, maintaining, keeping unemployment low, and maintaining a stable currency, you have to give the Federal Reserve a failing grade. Huge unemployment during the 1930s and again now, and also uh, its purchasing power, the dollar has lost 97% since it was created in 1913. Well, what about its unstated goals? What about the reasons that I just gave you uh, as reported by G. Edward Griffin in The Creature from Jekyll Island? Well, for that, I think uh, the Federal Reserve deserves a very good grade. It's done very well for its shareholders. For those handful of banks that own the Federal Reserve system, they're doing quite well. Thank you very much. So I think the Federal Reserve, in bailing out the uh, its member banks, the big ones, uh, at the cost of the uh, of the average American, has done extremely well. <clears throat> I think it's very important, though, that we understand, uh, whilst the Federal Reserve Bank is very much, in my view, uh, the reason for the problems that we're having now, or at least the severity of the problems we're having now, in the 1930s, the prolongation of the Depression, and, 19, and now the prolongation of this Depression, uh, I think it's also important to step back and realize, though, that this is human nature, that 
that human beings want to believe they can have something for nothing, that they can live beyond their means and never have to really uh, worry about that. And so if we go back and look at a long period of history, we realize that there's nothing new here, um, that, that in fact people uh, like to believe that they can, as I say, have their cake and eat it too. I have to give credit to my good friend Ian Gordon, who's gone back and is a real historian, a, st a student of history. Ian has gone back and looked at, uh, studied Nikolai Kondratiev's work. Kondratiev was an economist hired by Stalin to try to prove that the Federal Reserve, or the, uh, to try to prove that capitalism would self-destruct. And uh, he went back and looked at this uh, and said, no, it will not self-destruct, that in fact capitalism uh, in undergoes these long periods of stresses and strains when it, it expands its credit system and then uh, to the point where it breaks down and can no longer service the debt that is created. Uh, and for that, he was sent to the gulag because he didn't uh, prove that capitalism would self-destruct. Uh, self and he was, um, he was executed at the gulag uh, by the communist. Uh, so, but Ian Gordon has gone back and has actually captured actual data that goes back to the Revolutionary War. And it's very clear, if you look at Ian's chart, that we've had, uh, this would be the sixth major credit expansion and now credit contraction since the Revolutionary War. Ian has plotted on his chart stock prices, he's got gold prices, he's got uh, inflation rates uh, in green, he's got the uh, the U.S. total debt to GDP ratio plotted there, and he's also got interest rates. And it's very clear that we have these expansion, credit expansion, when the economy grows and credit grows, and then it reaches a point in which the credit can no longer, the debt can no longer be serviced. And I believe that we are at that point now, not only in the United States, but globally, and that what's going to happen is that we're going to have a very prolonged de depression, and that we are still in the early stages of this very prolonged de depression. Now, the mainstream media likes to pretend that this is something that could not be foreseen, but I would argue to the contrary. Ian Gordon certainly saw it. Ron Paul saw it coming. Most people who studied Austrian economics predicted it. The exact timing they couldn't predict, but they knew we were heading for big trouble because of the policies of the Federal Reserve Bank. The notion that you can expand credit and not uh, indefinitely and not have problems, of course, is alien to Austrian economic theory. And in fact, if we go back and look at the 1930s, we recognize that the policies that are being implemented now are exactly the same, only more so. Let me explain. Back in 1930s, uh, Murray Rothbard, an excellent Austrian economist, wrote a book called America's Great Depression, and he pointed out that the Fed pumped huge amounts of money into the banking system. It lowered the discount rate from 4.5% uh, uh, to 2% in 1930, and then from 2% to 1.5% by mid 1931. Yet, all of the money that was put into the banks did not cause the banks to lend. And we're seeing the same thing happen now. The banks are flush with cash, money is created out of nothing, pumped into the banks, and the banks are not lending. Uh, this policy is not working. It will not work. It cannot work. And yet, um, the, the uh, policymakers persist in insisting that it will. Uh, I just mentioned Murray Rothbard's America's Great Depression, but we should also talk about historian Burton Folsom, who was on my radio show uh, a year ago or so. And he wrote a book called New Deal or Raw Deal. And in that book, he uh, quoted Treasury Secretary Rosen, uh, Morgenthau, under, in the Roosevelt administration. Morgenthau was Roosevelt's close personal friend, and he wrote uh, in, in the book, uh, he is quoted, in Folsom's book, he is quoted as saying, and I quote, we have tried spending money, we are spending more than we have ever spent before, and it does not work. And I have just one interest, and if I'm wrong, somebody else can have my job. I want to see this country prosperous. I want to see people get a job. I want to see people get enough to eat. We have never made good on our promises. I say after eight years of this administration, we have just as much unemployment as when we started and an enormous amount of debt to boot. Now, doesn't that sound somewhat familiar? Doesn't it sound like what we're going through now? And yet, the policymakers persist. They continue to be very concerned. They continue to believe that they can just print more money, deficit spend our way to prosperity, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. Well, maybe they know better, 
But maybe, just maybe, the reason the Federal Reserve was created, as I pointed out, was not to really create a better economy for the masses, but basically to socialize, um, to socialize risk and privatize profit. And in 2002, Ben Bernanke wrote, he became very concerned about deflation uh, when the Japanese were having a problem with deflation, and he wrote uh, a paper called Deflation, Making Sure It Doesn't Happen Here. And shortly before Milton Friedman died, Ben Bernanke promised Milton Friedman that he would not let Milton down this time if we have another recession. Uh, that in fact this time we would get out ahead of the problem, and we wouldn't. Uh, we would. It wasn't that the 1930s uh, policies were wrong, but they just weren't executed properly. We needed to do more. We needed to pump more money in quicker and pull out all the stops, and we could have avoided a Great Depression. So Ben Bernanke continues to persist in this policy, uh, even though it's becoming increasingly obvious to the masses that it does not work. But is Ben Bernanke a fool? Perhaps he is. Perhaps he's not. Perhaps he's doing exactly what Ben Bernanke is supposed to do as a Federal Reserve Chairman, and that is to, uh, to bail out the, uh, the member banks, those few member banks that are so important, uh, that own such a big percentage of the Federal Reserve stock. Well, we're going to have to go to a commercial breakdown. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the Federal Reserve, what it's doing, uh, not so much what the Federal Reserve Bank is doing now, but what we can do given the fact, uh, given the likelihood that the Federal Reserve will continue to persist in the same policies, the same policies that do not work. So when we come back, we're going to talk, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about how we can protect ourselves against the creature from Jekyll Island, the creature from Jekyll Island that has been created not to help the masses as it pretends to do, but basically to protect uh, those key shareholders of the Federal Reserve Bank. We're going to go to commercial break now, and when I come back, we're going to talk about some things, uh, some ways that you can protect yourself against the creature from Jekyll Island. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity Attention gold stock investors, Brazil Resources Inc., trading as BRIZF on the OTCQX and as BRI on the TSX Venture, is exploring three gold projects in the Garupi Gold Belt in Brazil. Surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits, BRI features top Brazilian geologists, earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in Brazil, led by recognized mining and financing executive Amir Adnani, co-founder and chairman. Look us up now at www.brazilresources.com. That's Brazil Resources. Or call us at 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP Gold Project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's Navatschap Gold Mine. For updates, check out heliaresource.com.
Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in gold Gold and silver exploration. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 